Good morning. Glad you're here at Calvary. This is a great opportunity we have to gather together uh, in God's presence, to be able to experience his power. Uh, he's an amazing God. Uh, just last service, we had someone who put their faith uh, in Christ, and we're here to celebrate that God uh, is here saving people and rescuing people. And so, would you pray with me? And let's ask that God would be just as present now. Father, we give you all of the glory and all of the praise, Lord God. You do stuff that just makes our jaws drop. God, we listen to what you're up to and who you are and your incredible love. We hear about what you're doing in Portland, Maine. Uh, Lord God, the powers of darkness cannot overcome your light. And Lord, we see that here in Grand Rapids, right here at Calvary Church. Uh, Lord God, uh, that you are bringing uh, people to life. You're creating new life. And God, I pray uh, this service, that as your word goes forward, God, each one of us would come to know you better. Lord, that's what we want. The more we know about you, the more we fall in love with you. God, reveal yourself to us through your word. Explain to us just how great your love is for us and the incredible things you did to make it possible for us to know you and the hope of heaven. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good to be back with you. Uh, Lisa and I were gone last week. Uh, the elders of the church require that every other year, uh, all of us who are on the pastoral staff of the church have to go away uh, for a period of time without our kids, just a spouse retreat. And the purpose of that is, is that uh, ministry, just like life, it's pretty tough and it can take a toll on a marriage. And so the elders want to make sure that those of us who are in uh, positions of being pastors on staff have some time to get away. And the goal is, is while we're away, uh, we're supposed to just talk about how marriage is going and raising kids and ministry and just life and work on uh, the kinds of things that God might bring up. Well, this year, uh, it actually, we caused our spouse retreat. It coincided with Lisa's birthday. And so we went away uh, for Lisa's birthday and we went on a beach vacation. It was awesome. It was great. You know, beautiful blue water, sandy beaches, amazing weather, 80 degree weather, super relaxing. It was fantastic. And I remember that while I was there, literally, I'm sitting on the beach doing nothing, thinking, this is so great. And while I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, wow, this is like, this is like heaven. And then it dawned on me, and it probably should have dawned on me at some point before, I bet this actually is what heaven is like. Because after all, you know, as I'm sitting there just taking in this breath, breathtaking beauty of creation, I realized, and I'm sure I should have realized it before, I'm not the only one who thinks this is beautiful. God thinks this, like this is what God thinks is beautiful. Now, it's not the only thing he thinks that's beautiful, but I was there just enjoying, just relaxing and enjoying the beauty of creation. I'm thinking, well, this is why God calls heaven our eternal rest. It's a place of rest. It's a place of restoration. It's a place of beauty. And it wouldn't surprise me in the least if heaven looked a little bit like, now it's going to be much better, but a little bit like that beach vacation we were on. And that was useful to me because, I don't know about you, but sometimes it's kind of hard to imagine heaven. It's hard to envision what it might be like. It's hard to have a category for that. But the problem is, is if you can't, well, you've got nothing really to look forward to. 
And so while I was sitting there, it was really a great gift from God to be able to say, hey, look, you can't wrap your mind around what heaven is, but this is like a little piece of heaven right here on earth. And that was a great encouragement. I was like, well, if this is what heaven is like, I can't wait. Like, I can't wait for it to come. So while I sat there, uh, God used even being there in that little, what felt to me like a little piece of heaven on earth to encourage me, uh, to help me to, 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 to appreciate God and what he's done and the beauty of his creation. So it was a fabulous trip. It was a great trip, but it wasn't free. It cost a decent amount of money. Now, this was uh, aligned with Lisa's birthday, and so I knew that it was coming. And so I'd been saving for three years for this trip. Sort of any time we had a little bit of extra money, try to set, set it aside because I wanted this to be a great uh, experience for Lisa. And so part of it was I had been thinking about how much this cost. And so when we went on the trip, I sort of paid attention to the role that money played in facilitating the trip. And pretty much everything had to do with money. <laughs> cost money to book the hotel, though cost money to sort of establish relationships with the people that we went to see or the people that were there whenever you hired a taxi or you tip somebody, money provided for the food. Everything was run by money. Money made all of it happen. Now I share this with you because I think that the idea of going on a beach vacation and the cost associated with it is actually a really good illustration for something that we want to understand from the book of Hebrews. While I was there and I was enjoying all of this, when I got back, I was like, okay, Lord, I got to get back into preaching. How am I going to explain? Hebrews 9, the chapter we're in today, is pretty complex. And I thought, how in the world am I going to explain this? And he's like, well, I just gave you an entire week, which helps explain. And so I want to use that idea of going on a beach vacation and the cost associated with it to try to explain what God's saying in the book of Hebrews chapter 9. So if you have a Bible, would you turn there? Hebrews chapter 9, it's page 972 in the church Bibles. Hebrews chapter 9, while you're turning... We've been going through the book of Hebrews and we've been basically using the idea that in it is presented the fact that we are on a journey of faith, a journey of faith, that if you're a Christian, that there are little mini journeys of faith we all go through, which may be the sort of individual struggles or difficult things uh, that we're on. But in reality, we're on a bigger journey of faith, which is our Christian life. And that we've been talking about our Christian life in terms of a journey of faith. And we've been talking about things like Jesus as the high priest, which means he's the one who goes first on the journey. He makes the journey possible. He blazes the trail that when the Bible calls Jesus the high priest, he's the first one to go on the journey. And he makes our journeys possible. We've talked about how the destination of the journey is heaven. God's eternal rest, this beautiful promised land, like a beach vacation, but far, far better that God has promised to us. Last week, Pastor Tom took you through the idea of the new covenant. Well, the new covenant is the contract or the deal or the promise that sends us on the journey of faith. It's the promise that if you go on this journey of faith, it will end up at the destination. And Tom did a great job explaining how the new covenant works. Well, this morning, we're looking at Hebrews 9, which is really focused on the cost 
of the journey. The journey of faith is not free, and Hebrews 9 is talking about the cost to go on the journey. Now, we're really going to be focused on verses 11 through 28, but verses 1 through 10 set up the introduction to prepare you for what you're going to hear in verses 11 through 28. And in verses 1 through 10, the author of Hebrews draws on some stuff from the Old Testament. There's three things specifically mentioned in verses 1 through 10. The tabernacle, the high priest, and the blood of bulls and goats. And what the author of Hebrews is doing is he's using an illustration that his original audience would have been familiar with to try to explain from the Old Testament the tabernacle, the high priest, and the blood of bulls and goats something that he wants to say about Jesus. Now... When I looked at this, I thought, well, you know, this is kind of tricky because we could spend the entire time trying to even explain the illustration in verses 1 to 10 to make the rest of it make sense. And that's why I felt God saying, look, I've given you another illustration that you can use that corresponds to that. And so we're going to use the illustration of a beach vacation. So if you think about it, the tabernacle in the Old Testament What this was meant, this is like going on a beach vacation. The tabernacle was meant to be a little piece of heaven right here on earth, okay? That when you went into the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies, that's where God was present. And in God's presence, you experienced joy, you experienced peace, you experienced God's love. And in that tabernacle, it wasn't the full-on heaven experience, but it was a little piece of heaven right here on earth. When we went on this beach vacation, it felt like a little piece of heaven. It wasn't all that heaven had to offer. If you've been on a beach vacation and had a wonderful experience, you know what I'm talking about, that it's just, it's a little taste of the beauty, the rest, the relaxation, the wonders of how God created life the way it was supposed to be. The tabernacle is like a little piece of heaven. Well, the second piece is the high priest. Now, in our analogy... I'm the high priest, meaning that in the Old Testament, the high priest went into the tabernacle just once a year, and he went just himself. In our situation, it was just Lisa and I who went on the beach vacation. You all didn't go with us, for which we are somewhat thankful. It was just us. But the purpose in the Old Testament of the high priest going into the tabernacle was not simply so he could enjoy it for himself. The point was when he came out of the tabernacle, that little piece of heaven on earth, he was supposed to say to the people of Israel, I just met with God. And all this stuff, it's worth it. We got to keep going with God because I've got a little glimpse of what's coming. I've come back from a beach vacation and I'm saying to you, listen, Heaven is going to be far, far better than what I just went through, but what I just went through was fantastic. Stick with Jesus. Keep going on this journey of faith. And I've come back to tell you, I had a little taste of heaven on earth, and man, it's fantastic. Now the third thing, tabernacle high priest, the blood of bulls and goats. In our analogy, the blood of bulls and goats corresponds to the money. It says in Hebrews 9, 1 to 10, that the high priest was not allowed into that little piece of heaven on earth without somebody paying for it. 
and the payment was the blood of bulls and goats. This was the cost that was necessary in order for the high priest to go in to experience that little bit of heaven right here on earth. In our analogy, it cost money to be able to go on this beach vacation. And the point is, is have you ever read the Old Testament and you see blood everywhere? And you're kind of like, what is the deal with all this blood stuff? I mean, they're, they're washing stuff in blood and they're sprinkling stuff on blood and they're pouring blood all over the place and blood is everywhere. Well, the reason for that is God doesn't take American Express. Okay? In God's economy, American dollars have no value, but things still have a cost. And in God's economy, the most valuable thing there is is blood. Because in God's economy, the most valuable thing there is, is life, and life is in blood. We get this out of Leviticus 17. In Leviticus 17, it says, for the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. The blood is where life is, and what could be more valuable than life? God could care less about dollars, but what is really valuable to God is life. And the thing that is representative of life or where life is contained is in the blood. So when we talk about the blood of bulls and goats, what we're saying is, is this is the value of bulls and goats. It was the cost associated with the high priest being able to go into that little piece of heaven on earth. So the analogy is not perfect, but when you think about blood, one of the things that might be able to help you as you think through this is it's the cost associated. We couldn't have gone on the beach vacation, experienced that little piece of heaven on earth without there being a price paid for it. In the Old Testament, the currency that's used is blood. All of that is the setup for verses 11 through 28 Because the point of Hebrews is not to talk about Old Testament tabernacle high priest blood of bulls and goats, nor to talk about beach vacation, pastor going on it, and the money associated with it. All of it's meant to point to another three things which are related, and that is heaven, Jesus as high priest, and Jesus' blood. And the point of the illustration is, is that just like in the Old Testament, there was a little piece of heaven on earth, and one person got to go in and experience a little bit of heaven on earth, but at a great cost, all of that is meant to see, that's supposed to help us understand there is a real heaven that all of us can go into, but it comes at an incredible cost. And the rest of Hebrews 9 is spent talking about that cost And the cost of heaven is Jesus' blood. The most valuable thing in the universe is life. And life is in the blood. And so Hebrews 9 gives us three ways that Jesus' blood purchases for us heaven purchases for us the destination of the journey of faith. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. There is a cost associated with the journey of faith. And in God's economy, cost is not represented through dollars. It's represented through blood. And when we think about heaven, 
The cost associated with it is the cost represented by the blood of Jesus. And there's three things that Jesus' blood purchases for those who put their faith in him. The first is in verses 11 through 14. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ who through through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. The first thing that blood purchases is the forgiveness of sins. If I crashed into your car, one of the ways I would make restitution for my mistake is I would have to pay for the repairs on your car. Or if I sold you a bad product that caused you pain or problems, one of the ways I would make restitution for my mistake is that I would give you some sort of monetary compensation for what it is that you've been through. In this way, and I get it's only just a small picture of it, but in this way, money in a kind of way, atones for our mistakes. That if we break something, we pay to fix that thing. That money has some sort of way in which it helps make up for the mistakes that we made. Well, that's just a small picture to point us to the reality that we have sinned against a holy God. That we have made mistakes, we have made errors, we have broken things that belonged to God, and there must be a payment for those things, we must make restitution. Well, what is the payment? The payment for sin is death. What do we pay for for death? We have to pay with life. Where is life? Life is in the blood. And so Jesus' blood pays for our sins. It pays for the forgiveness of all our sins. Everything that we've done wrong, there is a cost associated with it. And Jesus' blood pays that cost. So the first thing that the blood purchases for us is absolute forgiveness. Total, complete restitution, reconciliation makes up for every mistake we have made, we will make anything. It's paid for by the blood of Jesus. Remember, dollars have no real value in God's economy. Blood does. And the payment for sins is death, and Jesus pays that price with blood. Second thing that Jesus' blood purchases for us, verses 15 through 22. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is not enforced when somebody has is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant 
was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The second thing that Jesus' blood accomplishes for us is that it seals the contract. It seals the contract. The word covenant is the word for contract or for a promise. It's an agreement. It's a deal. Now, if you think about it, money does this to some extent. When we made arrangements to stay at a hotel at our beach vacation, we sent them money and that money formed a contract. It formed in a relationship. That hotel was legally obligated to house us because we entered into an agreement with them. They said, we'll provide housing. We said, we'll provide this amount of money. We put down a down payment, and the purpose of the down payment is if we break our part of the contract, meaning we say, oh, no, no, we don't actually want to stay there, we have to forfeit our portion of the down payment. But the point is, is that money, to some extent, forges a contract or forges an obligation between two parties. Well, in the ancient world, the most serious form of covenant or contract was a blood covenant, a blood contract. Because what it was is that any contract or any deal that was signed in blood, any contract or any covenant or any deal which involved sacrifice was essentially saying, look, if either party violates the terms of this contract, the proper response is death. Blood represents life. If you sign a contract in blood, it basically says, I swear on my life, I'm going to obey this. I'm going to keep the terms of the contract. The point is, is that God wants to make a contract with us. It's called the new covenant. Again, Tom did a great job last week explaining how that works, that in the new covenant, God has said, I promise to you, I promise to you that I will be your God and you will be my people. I promise you, I will give you my spirit and place my spirit within you and teach you my laws and my ways. I promise that I will forgive your sins and remember them no more. And in order for that contract to be valid, it has to be signed. And so God signed it in the blood of Jesus. He made it a blood contract. What it basically means is, look, God's down payment on the contract is the blood of Jesus. If he should somehow fail to keep what he agreed to do in that contract, he would have to give up his life. And God is life. He can't give it up. He would have to give up Jesus, but he cannot be separated from Jesus. He signed the contract in the blood of Jesus because the most valuable thing that God has is not dollars, it's blood. And the most valuable thing he has is the blood of Jesus. And when God wanted to swear that this contract would be absolutely true, when he wanted to make this contract absolutely binding, he made it a blood covenant. And in the blood of Jesus, that covenant is sealed. It is in effect. 
contracts, this is the point. Contracts are no good until you sign them. And God made a contract. If you will believe in Jesus, I will be your God. You will be my people. I will forgive all of your sins. I will put my laws in your hearts. I will give you an eternal life. And to make it valid, he signed his name in the blood of Jesus. Third thing that blood does. Verses 23 to 28, but we're only going to look at verses 23 and 24. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. Talking about the Old Testament stuff, the tabernacle. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Jesus is not an earthly high priest who goes into a little piece of heaven here on earth. He goes into heaven itself. And the high priest on earth had a little bit of a relationship with God because he got to visit a little piece of heaven on earth, just like I had a little bit of a relationship with God when I visited this little piece of heaven on earth. Jesus has a full-on relationship with God because he's gone not into a copy of heaven or a piece of heaven, but into heaven itself, and the blood of his sacrifice makes possible the relationship with God. In the ancient world, if you wanted to talk about somebody who was especially close to you relationally, we call them my flesh and blood. My flesh and my blood. This means this is someone who's in the closest possible relationship to me. We still say it today, blood is thicker than water. The idea that blood represents the depth of relationships. You can hear this when you hear the language of blood brothers. And some people even today in an active ceremony will cut their hand so that it's bleeding. And the other person cuts their hand and when they shake hand, there is a mingling of blood. That's a ceremony to say we are of the closest possible relationship with one another. Why? Because life is in the blood. And if you're willing to let blood intermingle, what you're saying is our lives are joined together. And blood represents the closeness of relationship. In a small way, a very small way, money does this as well. I told you that we went on this trip for Lisa's birthday. She had watched me save for three years to try to get together enough money so that I could give her this as a present. When we went there and we spent the money to be able to have the hotel and to be able to eat the food and to be able to rent the car and do those kinds of things, it was an expression of how much I love her because it cost me something. In my world, the most valuable thing that I could have given her to save up for this was to save money for the trip. In God's world, money has no real value. In God's world, the most valuable thing that he can give is blood because blood is where the life is. And so the relationship that God wants to establish with you or that God wants to affirm with you is that he gave the most valuable thing he had, which is the blood of his son. And the third thing that blood does is it establishes and deepens the relationship we have with God. There was nothing more valuable that God could have given than the blood of his son. Here's the point of all of Hebrews 9. The journey of faith is not free. The journey of faith is not free. 
No one enters into heaven without the price being paid. You don't go on a beach vacation without paying the price. You don't go into the tabernacle without paying the price. There is a cost associated with being able to go on the journey of faith. Every trip costs something. And the point of Hebrews 9 is, look, if you're going on a beach vacation, you could save maybe for three years and go to a a pretty decent place and have a pretty good vacation. But we're talking here about not a little beach vacation. We're talking about heaven itself. We're talking about eternal life. We're talking about being in the presence of God. We're talking about no more tears, no more pain. We're talking about life that never ends. We're talking about God's peace, God's joy, God's love lasting forever and ever. And the point is, how much do you think that costs? I mean, listen, there were some places that we looked at that would have been nice to go on a beach vacation that we were not going to be able to afford. I could have worked my entire life and saved money. We weren't going to be able to afford to go to those places on the vacation. The point is, if you can't afford those places, how in the world would you afford heaven? And the point is, you can save your entire life, but there's no amount of money, there's no amount of good deeds, there's no amount of promises, there's no amount of things that you and I can do that can pay for that journey of faith. And so God said, I'll pay for it. I will pay for it. And the question is, what God do you have a value to offer that you can pay for this? And he says, I have the blood of my son. Because Jesus is fully God, when he became a human, his blood, his life had eternal value, infinite value, enough value to be able to pay for everything that needed to be paid for. Look at verses 25 and 26. Nor did Jesus enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Listen, the high priest in the Old Testament, he had to pay every year to get into the tabernacle. When we went on this beach vacation, it cost a decent amount of money. If we wanted to go next year, we'd have to pay more money again. Jesus is different. His blood is so infinitely valuable that when he paid the price to forgive our sins, to sign the contract with God, to establish the relationship, he only had to do it once. And that the blood of Jesus pays for all the sins you're ever going to commit, I'm ever going to commit, all the sins that have ever been committed. His blood is of infinite value. And when Jesus signs the contract in his blood, it doesn't need to be re-signed. It doesn't have to be signed over and over again. You don't have to ask for the contract. Are you sure you're going to keep this? God has signed the contract in the blood of Jesus. The point is, listen, If in the Old Testament, the blood of bulls and goats was sufficient to sort of cover over sin a little bit, how much more will the blood of the eternal son pay everything that's ever owed for those sins? If in the Old Testament, the blood of bulls and goats went some way to establishing the first covenant, how much more will the blood of the eternal son pay to have this covenant firmly and fixed, uh, fixedly established. If the blood of bulls and goats went some way so that that high priest could have a little bit of a relationship with God in that tabernacle or heaven on earth, how much more will the blood of the eternal son establish how much God loves us and how much he wants us to be in a relationship with him? Another way to say it is this. If money 
goes some distance towards making restitution to the mistakes that we've made, how much more will the blood of the eternal son pay for everything that we've done wrong? If money goes some small distance to establishing a contractual relationship with another party, how much more will the blood of the eternal son establish an inviolable, unbreakable covenant between us and God? If money goes some distance to establishing my affection or your affection for someone else, if money somehow expresses how much we love someone, how much more does the blood of the eternal son declare to us that God the Father loves us absolutely infinitely and totally. The point is, is the journey of faith costs something. And God said, you're never going to be able to afford it. And so he had a choice. He could sit on his beach vacation by himself or he can invite us to come, but he would have to pay for it. See, Jesus is like the billionaire who goes down to that beach vacation, pays for the hotel, pays for all the food, pays the staff that work there so well that they can't wait to serve him and anybody who hangs out with him. And then he says, come and join me. Because God said, I love you so much, it wouldn't be much of a vacation if you weren't here. And the offer that he makes to you and the offer that he makes to me is, look, it's all here. You were never going to be able to afford this. (laughs) You could work all your life. You could labor every possible way. You wouldn't even been able to pay for the first food that came onto the table. God said, I'll pay for it all. All I want is for you to come. I just want you to come and enjoy it. I just want you to come and see it. Now this leads us to communion. In communion, we hold in our hand a piece of bread and we hold in our hand a cup. Now normally when we hold that cup, we quote from 1 Corinthians, which is great. But if you take the Matthew version of what Jesus says when he's holding that cup, he says, this is my blood of the covenant given for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is saying, listen, I know the cost. I know what it's going to cost in order to get that vacation for you. I know what it's going to cost to open heaven up to you. And I'm willing to pay it. And this cup represents that incredible cost. Jesus is like that billionaire dad who's sitting there looking at all these kids that he loves and says, you're never going to be able to afford this vacation. So I'm just going to pay the whole thing. Not at some cheap cost like money, but at the cost of my own blood. Now in just a minute, bread and cup are going to be distributed. If you're a believer in Jesus, take the bread, take the cup. And just to hold on to them, we're going to to partake of them together. But while you're doing I want you to know that the whole trip, the whole thing, the whole journey of faith is paid for. Jesus has paid it all in advance. And that all we're doing right now is we're just, we're celebrating. If I called you up and said, hey, I got a beach vacation. The whole thing's been paid for by somebody. I'd love to make it available to you. You'd be pretty excited. Well, God's called you up today and said, I've got heaven waiting for you. It's all been paid for. Now, if you're here and you're not yet a believer in Jesus, on one hand, I'm going to ask you not to participate in the bread and the cup. But on the other hand, I'm going to say, why not? If I said to you, I have a vacation in a beautiful location, blue seas, sandy beach, 
perfect temperatures. All the food is paid for. The hotel is paid for. Everything is taken care of. Do you want it? Now, I know immediately, well, what are the strings? I get that. That's the way the world works. But I'm telling you, there are no strings attached. God is saying, look, I just don't want to sit on this beach by myself. I want you to come and join me. All you have to do is accept. Listen, the contract's not valid until you sign it too. He's already signed it in the blood of Jesus. Now what he's saying to you, take that cup, drink that juice, and sign the contract. I just want to give it all to you. You want to know what the fine print is? The fine print is God loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you that whoever is willing to believe on him will not perish but have eternal life. That's the fine print. The deal is please, please come and experience heaven. Heaven. 